Good morning, everybody. Oh, it's a good morning. Oh, I'd like to welcome you all again. We're going to be in Romans chapter 11 this week. Move that here. So it is a, it's an honor, as always, to be uh, opening God's Word with you all this morning. It is an extra honor today uh, for tons of reasons, right? We've already seen actually the most important thing that happens today, but um, hence the sniffles. But uh, it's also an especially uh, important, fun, wonderful thing um, today to be opening God's Word uh, before you because um, this is the last time that I'm going to be able to do so for a little while, just a little while. Um, Our church uh, has a wonderful tradition in keeping with a pattern of scripture of sabbatical that once every seven years um, we support our ministry staff by uh, allowing them to rest and to recharge and to take a break. And I have been here seven years and it is crazy to think of that. We're going to talk about this more later, but... um, yeah, even reflecting this morning, um, I can just I can remember some of the prayers that you guys helped us write for your kids four, five, six, seven years ago, and to have seen them grow up and have that honor and privilege, and others that I've just met and and get to now be on a journey with. It's it's just wonderful. So, being up here with a mic rather than later when I won't have a mic. Um, Two things, just to thank you all so much for being a church that cares for its pastors and ministry staff so well that you would offer something like a sabbatical. Um, and two, and actually I kind of mean this one even more, um, thanks so much for being a church. Jesus has done a lot in this church, a lot. We, we celebrated the 40th. It's been a lot. Jesus has done a lot in this church. You're a church that cares for its pastors really, really well. You care for us, you care for me, you care for my family so well that I'm really excited to go on the sabbatical, not out of a sense of like the plane is on fire and it's going to land whether or not we call it a landing or a crash. No, I'm, I'm legitimately so excited to get to rest and recharge and refuel and look forward to the next leg of this journey that God's called my family on here at In Town. Um, I I love being here. I love being one of your pastors. I love, I love this kind of Sunday. So um, anyway, just thanks. Thanks so much. You'll hear some more details about what the Yates clan is going to be doing um, on that sabbatical here in a couple weeks, but didn't want that to catch you off guard um, as people start talking about Steve not being here for a little while. It's, it's, it's good. It's good. Okay. With that, um, we've been in a series on Romans. We're in Romans chapter 11 today. Um, Romans can be uh, looked at kind of different than most of Paul's letters. And I want to just, I want to give us a bunch of reminders. Today is a bunch of review in some ways. And that's not just because we need review. It's also because Paul actually builds review into his letters because he knows we need review. Um, It matters that we kind of come back to these same ideas again and again and again. And so here 
in Romans chapter 11, he's going to be really wrapping up a lot of what he talked about in chapter 9 and chapter 10 as well. But it connects very, very broadly to why he is writing this letter and why it's kind of special among Paul's letters. See, most of Paul's letters were to churches that he helped plant or at least had a really, really deep relationship with. So he could write these letters, most of them very endearing. I mean, it was, it, was, it was Bob Cargo coming back to speak at the 40th anniversary level, happy endearing. A couple of the letters, he can write and kind of get the, I'm going to be your dad for a moment kind of thing and say some pretty hard things to them. But still, there's a sense of relationship. We don't have that in the book of Romans. And the reason we don't have that is because Paul didn't start this church. Um, and while he does greet a few people at the end of the book itself, the letter, um, it's not with the same greeting sense that, oh, I've been there a lot before, I can't wait to see you again, say hi to all the relatives for me until I'm able to make it. No. Rather, it is a, it is a moment in which Paul has received a calling from God somewhat of a new calling. Most of Paul's ministry up to this point for decades has been among the, the, the group of, of churches that he has helped plant around the Mediterranean. And as Jimmy talked to us in greater detail last week, suddenly he's received this great burden, this unction of the Holy Spirit to go tell people who've never heard of Jesus before about him. And for Paul and where he's at, that actually means him going west, northwest, up into Spain. And what does he need for that? He needs, he needs an in-town. He needs a church that is going to send him well and support him and pray for him and love him like you all do for so many of our global partners. But the caveats are this. In, in a non-digital age where you can Google a church and then go on that church's website and then start looking up sermons of that church and then attending virtually for a number of times before you ever go into the church's doors, they didn't have any of that. And because of that, Paul, over his 20 plus years of ministry, while he had preached at a lot of places, there have also been some people who didn't like him. And those people who didn't like him spread rumors about him, or they questioned his theology. Even people maybe with good motives who just knew him when he was Saul said, what, that guy is planting churches? Heck no, this must be some plot, some conspiracy to draw the Christians out and kill us. And so Paul dealt with a lot of that tension as he was coming to a new place. And part of Romans is written as this explanation, almost as a, a resume, if you will. This is the gospel. This is what I believe. I don't know what you've heard about me, but this is who I am. And this is the same gospel that I want to talk to those people in Spain who need Jesus so much about. And then the second thing is uh, Rome, the church of Rome itself was not a perfect church any more than in town is a perfect church, even though we love, I love you so much. Um, I'm in it. Obviously, it's not a perfect church. There was some division, division that was common for many, many churches in the early history of the church. 
uh, tension between Jewish believers, people who believed in Jesus and were both ethnically and religiously coming from a Jewish background, and then also Gentiles, which is just a word that means non-Jewish, so kind of everybody else. And, every, and, and they're working about these, they're working their theology out in real time. They're not coming to a place like an in-town with an established set of traditions and practices. No, they're working it out in real time. Though actually it's kind of weird for me to say that because in some ways we are always working out our relationships with each other, with God, with our church polity in real time. Uh, they just happen to do it in a very specific way. So he also addresses a number of those issues, especially pastorally, um, not just to sort of show off his pastoral chops, but because he needs this church to be healthy if it's going to launch him to Spain. And so the book of Romans is kind of split up into these three sections. We dealt with chapters one through eight last semester as kind of the first series within a series or first half of this series. And it ended with this climactically beautiful moment that Jimmy picked back up on at the beginning of the year as well. This passage of Romans that says neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation can separate you and I from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing. It is the climactic ribbon on top of a wonderful, incredible gift of the gospel that Paul lays out beautifully in chapters 1 through 8, that we don't deserve God, that all of us live in rebellion against him, but that even that was not enough to drive God away from us. He reaches out. He chooses us. He grabs us. He loves us. And he will not let go. But even with that, and even with him doing a great job, Paul doing a great job of answering a number of these issues, struggles, he anticipates a bunch of things along the way. There's one more big one that that climactic moment in Romans 8 brings up, and it's this. Paul speaking, if, if someone were speaking to Paul, it would be, Paul, you just said, no one deserves God. God loves us. God will not let us go. And this is an ironclad promise he has made and staked literally his whole self and being on. Man, that's awesome. But what about the Jews? Does literally the establishment of this promise to never break his promise... Did that necessitate a broken promise to happen? You can imagine how scary that would sound, even to a Jewish person who was a believer in Jesus, still. And so we have been unpacking chapters 9 through 11, this idea of God and whether or not he breaks promises. Because in some ways, Paul is right. Even if and I'll say this to you as well, even if, and I hope you do, I hope you do have Jewish friends, even if you don't know a Jewish person at all today, if Paul doesn't have an answer for this question, then what's our faith worth? Paul does. 
He's said it a couple of times, but he's going to say it really forcefully now. And I'd like to ask Megan to come up and read Paul's answer for us. This morning's scripture reading is from Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Pray with me. Jesus, be who you are, glorious, wonderful. A person who rather than having all the answers is the answer. So help us to get to know you this morning, not just a bunch of biblical knowledge. Pray this in your name. Amen. I prayed in that way because I am very aware for myself as much as anything that um, today's sermon, 90% of it is going to almost feel like a lecture. I hope that's okay. I got my clicker up here. I have my laser pointer. But understanding at the very end of this chapter, Paul is going to pull a right turn, and I think he, he asks something of us as believers. But to know that hard right turn, I think we have to understand what kind of car we're driving. So let's understand a little bit of, of where Paul is going, how he's wrapping up this idea that no, God has not, by any stretch of the imagination, forgotten the Jews. The way to think about Paul's answer, there's actually kind of a name for it, um, and the, the name for it is uh, the remnant or remnant theology. And we're going to get to what that means in a second. But remember, basically, the, 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 the framework that Israel operated on, or that maybe some people even today assume Israel operated on in the Old Testament, was a belief that Israel is God's people. Israel is God's people. And everybody else is not God's people. They're not Israel. Those are the only two categories that matter. It doesn't actually even matter if you are, you know, not Israel but this, not Israel but Greek, not Israel but Roman, not Israel but... No, no, there are two categories, Israel and not Israel. What's interesting about how we kind of wrap up a lot of that, what a lot of people think or, or could assume, maybe the, the readers of Paul to this point are worried about, is that what Paul is doing is just this. Colors matter. Sherry Brennan would be proud of me here. That instead of Israel, what I have here on the graph is blue being God's people, 
Now suddenly, it's not Israel. It's Gentiles. You can understand how Jewish believers in Jesus would be scared of that, that kind of feel. What's important to know and what Paul is reminding them here in chapter 11 using a kind of longer quotation or reference to an earlier story in the Old Testament is that what's actually true, and this is true throughout the Old Testament, he just picks a really wonderful example of it, is this, that there was always an Israel, always an Israel, and always within that whether we're talking about Israel just as a, a kind of a family, a body of people moving through the wilderness, whether we're talking about Israel after it's been established as a, a, a kingdom, a nation, whether we're talking about Israel in exile later when it kind of gets shattered or when it comes back together or any other point in biblical history, this is always true, that there's always been within the wider group of Israel a people of God. Now, different passages will make that more clear or less clear, and they'll do that because sometimes it seems like most of Israel is comprised of that remnant. It feels like most of Israel is following God. And then there are also a lot of places where it's like, do these people, have they even heard of God? I mean, read anything past Deborah in the book of Judges, for instance. It is, a, it is a terrifying thing. What Paul references here is kind of an example of God naming it this. In 1 Kings 18, there's a wonderful story that I wish we had more time to go into in great detail because it is, it is literally my favorite passage in the entire Bible. Um, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but it's funny. Um, I was a little superstitious as a middle schooler and a high schooler and definitely had some issues with my own theology, definitely. But the way I would calm myself down before a test slash maybe kind of hope God would give me an extra edge on the test, see, bad theology, was reading 1 Kings 18 every single time before I took a test. Read it hundreds of times. Did not get all A's. See, there you go, theology. In 1 Kings 18, though, what we have is we have a prophet named Elijah. Elijah is a firebrand. He is loud. He is strong. He would literally be on talk radio or like a, a talk show type thing today. He would, be a, he would be a political talking head. But he exists in an Israel that, that doesn't really follow God at all. And so you can imagine how cynical and frustrated this guy is. Eventually, all of this comes to a head. And again, you can see more of the details by reading 1 Kings 18 yourself. But God and Elijah set up a face-off between God and the prophets of Baal or Baal, the kind of God flavor of the week that the Israelites were following instead of the actual God. There is a lot of ceremony. There is joking. There is some beautiful, sarcastic humor coming from Elijah. But ultimately what it results in is, if you watch the Orange Bowl this past year, literally a Georgia versus Florida State moment crushing of 
the prophets of Baal. Um, 62 to 3 or whatever it was, right? A huge, massive defeat. God wins. And while there's the briefest moment of revival, it's extinguished just like that. And so Elijah, you'd think, awesome firebrand, who's basically just won the election, instead of being excited, he runs for his life. And he runs into a cave literally to die because he's just too tired to keep going. God speaks to him. God assures him he loves him. He will eventually send literally food and water to help care for Elijah. But one of the things he tells him is this, and it's both beautifully caring for him and beautifully humbling at the same time. He says, Elijah, you're not alone. Not just you're not alone because I'm here, God, but he says, you're not alone I've got other people who believe in me. I've been keeping other people. I've been keeping thousands of other people safe in the midst of this craziness. There is a remnant. It is not all on you. So Paul is referencing this because he's applying this to what has always been. That Israel has always existed, and then within Israel, there has always been this remnant, this people of God. And so actually what Paul is appealing to now, what he's expanding the theology out in, is that you and I are part of that remnant too. Rather than just being a remnant inside of Israel, it's that there's a whole world And within that whole world, there is this group of people and or nation called Israel. And then within that, but also now increasingly added to that from all these other nations, there is a people of God. And we get to be a part of that people. And so does God keep his promises? Yes, of course he does. Because God has always been committed to the people that he has wrapped up in his arms to love. And the Jewish people who are reading this, who believe in Jesus, are evidence of that just as much as the Gentile people who are reading this are evidence of that. You and I and all the children up here who committed and confessed Jesus this morning are evidence of that. Now, I think this passage throws, and really this whole chapter, throws a, a challenge, though, at us, too. And to understand that challenge, I actually want to do a, a quick excursus, um, fancy academic word that I didn't know for very, very long until I read books that were way too long. It is literally an author's excuse for talking about something else unrelated-ish. Um, and so step away from the Bible for a second. Very dangerous for a pastor. I say two problems um, context-wise because historically the church, Christians, have not always done a good job handling this kind of theology. One of the big things that we do, and Jimmy has uh, just finished teaching on this for four weeks, is that sometimes we can equate that larger circle of Israel 
And, and I put here a church-state nexus specifically to talk about kind of Israel as this nation. We can kind of put some other country or group or people there and say, we are now God's chosen people here to bless everybody. We, insert nation here or insert denomination here, insert um, age group here. I'll be honest, confession, the number of times probably unconsciously I believed early on as a pastor that my generation, and by my generation I meant the like 12 months of people who were on Facebook at that point, like we could solve all the problems of the church and we were going to go in and be amazing for Jesus. And instead some of us have podcasts made about them and and things like that, right? It's I mean, the, the obvious low-hanging fruit here is people who would say that the United States is uh, kind of the new God's people. And sometimes I think we can, we can live that way in sort of our Western centricism. Um, but I want to make it sure you hear it like that because it doesn't have to be. Now, we put lots of things in that blank. We equate them with God's people. The other one we do is we redefine that remnant as the group. And so uh, one way that happens is by just saying modern Israel is the same as either the remnant or just as earlier Israel altogether. Jimmy said this last week. I just want to reiterate for you. Um, We do not believe that the modern state of Israel is the same as the Israel we read in the Old Testament. This is not a political statement. It has nothing to do with whether I, Jimmy, any of us support or not this political entity. It is not a question of ethnic identity at all. It is simply saying that for a short amount of time, God took a group of people and bound them together. Again, with that remnant inside and often would appeal to them based on that relationship. So we find in the Psalms, prayers for the king. We find in um, the Chronicles, uh, almost kind of if-then prayers, that if the nation will do this, then God will do that. We find in um, Jeremiah and in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, all of these promises um, to this specific group of people as Israel to return. We can learn a lot from those things. We can care a lot about any specific group returning to God. But it is not the same. And I want us to get that because as Paul is talking about God not breaking his promises, as he's talking about God not ever turning his back on his people, we want to make sure that we're not making either one of those errors. We're not, we want to make sure that we're not saying either, well, the United States is going to hell in a handbasket, therefore, you know, I'm losing faith in God because God is not keeping his promises to his people. Or things are going really, really bad with the modern state of Israel now, um, God is breaking his promise, or um, 
God can't be breaking his promise, and we've got to be on God's side, so we have to kind of pour effort or energy or finances or anything else in a certain direction. Now, notice I did not say anywhere, again, I don't want to lose you on what Paul is saying here. Not a political statement at all. In fact, Christian values should, the gospel should shape as much as we can our relationship with any other country because we are made in the image of God. But I want us to make sure to not make the error because this is what I actually think the great challenge for us is. If the answer to this question is yes, that God keeps his promises, that God is intensely committed to those who are his own and he will never let them go, and he is always compiling for himself this remnant, this group, this group of people who make up that group that he has made promises to that he will never let go. One of the great promises there and what is reflected in just the existence of the book of Romans is that God is both not forgetting his people Israel and he is also adding to it people from every nation and tribe and tongue under heaven. The rest of chapter 11 is kind of both and a, a, a reconciliation conversation where it's Jewish people, God hasn't forgotten you. Gentile people, don't get big heads. God hasn't forgotten them. All of you need Jesus. All of you get Jesus. And one day we will all be together. And we see that great picture in, Roman, or in Revelation chapter 7 when the Apostle John sees a vision of a great multitude in which no one can count from every tribe and tongue and nation. The challenge I, I'll be honest, the challenge I receive from this and the challenge that I, I want you to have as well. Sorry. If we're a remnant, and God is compiling and growing that remnant from every nation and tribe and tongue under heaven. And we know it is certain that that will take place. I believe very strongly that that actually should give us a lot of peace about the sovereignty and victory of God. I know things are very scary. I work with some of you and family and kids, and I mean, it's terrifying. I'm terrified for my children. It's hard. It's a hard world. But there is peace. And part of that peace is that God will accomplish his purpose. God will compile for himself a nation or a, 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 a body of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. It's done. We have seen the Polaroid. When I was growing up, I learned so many wonderful things about Jesus. I learned to fall in love with Jesus from um, a group of people. I've referenced a couple of times in sermons, but, but also struggled some theologically. And, and one of the things I struggled with is they actually kind of believed in both of the errors that I talked about for just a minute. The United States was definitely God's people, and definitely we had to care about the modern nation state of Israel or else God wasn't going to come back or else 
the peoples of the world were not going to be reached. And that's not true. Because God never breaks his promises. So let's step back from the kind of politically charged or historically charged for a second. Who is it for you? Who do you have such anxiety about not knowing Jesus that consciously or unconsciously makes you not believe in God's promise that he's going to keep his promises forever? One way we can do that, one way I've done that in the past is seeing myself as the linchpin for the gospel. Now, everything Jimmy said last week is true. We're going to get there about us caring deeply about evangelism, the whole vision that we are talking about, about showing our neighbors, discovering this incredible love of Jesus. But also, it's not about us. Churches go down in flames all the time, figuratively and literally. If in town disappears tomorrow, it will be horrible and sad, and we will weep, and God will not move an inch from his throne. If some of the things we do well stop existing for whatever reason, God will still reach wonderful, incredible people here in Atlanta if the White House, the coffee house burns down if that program goes away, if IDX implodes tomorrow, our student ministry, God remains committed to your kids. We can so often equate ourselves with the mission that it gives us so much anxiety about being a believer in Jesus that we can't actually connect with who God actually is. And that is a massive recipe for burnout, whether that's pastoral burnout on my end or just Christian burnout for all of us. I love, I love, I say it as much as I can what John the Baptist said, I am not the Christ. He is. That guy over there whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, if we have that peace, if we have that peace, we can embrace God's purpose for us. If it's not all on us, then how exciting is it that the king of all creation wants to include us? But you know this, whether it is parenting or work or whatever, as we lean into it with anxiety, it is, it is actually not freeing. It is, it is confining, it is broken to lean into any problem, anything with a sense that I must fix this, I'm, I must go into this, I must be able to, I must, I must, I must. But what it's a, I get to. I get to join dad in what he's already doing. We need to stop thinking of ourselves as the mechanics and start thinking of ourselves as the four-year-old who's just been handed a wrench because God is a great dad. If that is the case, then Paul can both and tell to these readers, God cares about you. He cares about the other people around you who you're not like. 
if he decides to call somebody like Paul to spend a lot of money and resources to go care for people who don't look like you, it's going to be okay. If he does end up then calling a bunch of people and resources to care for people who do look like you, awesome. We can get on board this sense that God is doing something incredible even if it doesn't always directly connect with me. peace, and purpose. We're going to come to the table. I'd like to pray for a minute. Jesus, will get to it soon, but the good news is Paul ends this challenge on one of the most beautiful declarations of your glory in the entire Bible. There is, there is nothing better we can say than we do not deserve to be here and we get to be here and thank you so much. Break our hearts, God, for the people who don't know you, who are around us, and the people who are not around us, who don't know you. But God, please break our hearts with a deep, deep knowledge that your heart was broken long ago for them so much more. And that we're, we are crying and seeking and longing with you not to get your attention or to rage that you don't care. Pray this in your name. Amen.